John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the news of God. Time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Then the man in the synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed that they asked each other, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, people brought Jesus brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not tell the let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out and his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and t t began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Right, let's, um, let's pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you for your word that Mark has written down for us. Things it shows us. Lord, would you open our hearts, open our minds 
see, to be amazed at and drawn to who Jesus is, we pray. Amen. Well, um, Aslan is on the move. He says, he is, he is on the move. There we go. Aslan is on the move. That was seamless, wasn't it? Just, you know, when I thought of that opening, that was exactly how I imagined it. Um, Aslan is on the move. There you go. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you would have seen it uh, or read it. And in that, in that uh, story, the talking beast, kind of this, this, kind of, uh, this little saying goes around the talking beast with excitement. Aslan is on the move. It's, it's in the endless winter with no Christmas under the reign of the White Witch. And, and the winter begins to thaw. The snow melts. Suddenly they hear water flowing again where it's always been frozen over. The sun starts to shine. The flowers bud. And everyone is excited. The word goes around. Aslan's coming back to Narnia. Aslan is near. You see, what that part of the story shows us is that when a king draws near, his kingdom breaks out and stuff just starts to change. The kingdom comes. And in that story, the talking beasts kind of join this revolution. They join this new movement with Aslan of what is happening in Narnia. And, and that really is, is, is the moment that we've got here in Mark's story of Jesus. It's that moment of change, the breaking in of the kingdom. Here we have Jesus launching his public ministry. It's him kind of for the first time going out and doing things. And Mark is saying, the king is here, and this is what it looks like. What, what we really get is just kind of this, um, this kind of eyewitness account, this kind of people who go along and see these things happen, these disciples, who, who, who we see what it looks like, God's kingdom looks like, and what it looks like to be in the kingdom with the king. So um, do have uh, Mark open, page 1002, and uh, we're going to dig into it together. And firstly, verses 14 to 20, we'll see. There was a call for us to be drawn to the call of the kingdom. So Jesus' time is here. John the Baptist's ministry is over. We looked at him uh, last week and, uh, and saw that he was preparing the way. He's now in prison. And so Jesus launches his ministry uh, basically with this, this press conference in Galilee. And, and, and at this kind of this, this launch at this press conference, the one-line summary of what he's come to do and say is this. The kingdom of God has come near. Good news, the kingdom of God has come near. You might say, well, kind of, what, what, what does that mean? What is, what's the kingdom of God talking about? Well, we're about to see it, and we just kind of read through it as Naomi read it. What it looks like as, as the kingdom unfolds and, and as Jesus' ministry unfolds. But, but the key thing to see about the kingdom is that the kingdom comes with the king. I mean, it sounds stupid, doesn't it? But, it? but it's the king who brings the kingdom. The king who brings his reign. The king who brings the change. The king is on the move. He's getting things back in order in his kingdom. That's what Jesus is coming to do. And as he says, the, the kingdom of God has come near. There's an invitation that comes with it, a response he's looking for. Verse 15, he says, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. 
It'd be like these are kind of like the two wings of response that Jesus looks for from people. Repentance and faith. Come into the kingdom, enter into it by repentance and faith. This is what life in the kingdom looks like, ongoing repentance and faith. But the problem is that lots of Christians are kind of flying in circles because they're only using one wing. Kind of just going round and round in circles. We tend to get that faith is required. We kind of understand that Jesus has asked us to put our belief in him and, and follow him. And so we think, yeah, I believe what you say, Jesus. I, I trust in you. Okay, that's fine. This idea of repentance, well, we feel a bit more kind of a little less keen on that. Maybe not so sure what repentance is and, and what it means. Perhaps we so emphasize belief, we think that nothing else matters. And we kind of end up with kind of one-winged, easygoing Christianity. You know what the problem is? Is that even Satan believes in Jesus. Satan knows Jesus is real. He knows the things that Jesus has done. He knows who he is. Satan does not turn to Jesus. Satan does not love Jesus. He does not turn to follow Jesus and trust in him. There's a really big difference, isn't there? Jesus doesn't only call us to change what we think is true because of him, but he joins us to join, uh, he calls us to join his kingdom. He joins us to kind of join this revolution, this new thing that is going on. And so repentance is learning to live in light of the kingdom, learning to live in this new reality by faith. If you like, the simplest way to understand it, it's like a U-turn in life. It's saying, look, my life is going in one direction, heading in a certain way towards certain things. And repentance is literally the kind of complete about turn and turning away from certain things and towards new things. Saying, look, the king has called me to this change of direction, a total change of life. And so repentance is this proactive thing. It's not just feeling guilty when I've done something wrong or feeling sad about the consequences of the bad choices I've made. That isn't repentance. That's worldly sorrow. That's regret. Anyone can feel that. And the thing is with that is that does not lead to any sort of change in life, not in your life or mine. It doesn't lead to any sort of kingdom living. We just feel kind of bad and sad about the way things are. Let me try and uh, tell, tell a, a true story to, to help um, help us kind of get get grips of this this idea. Before I um, before I lived in Birmingham, I had a good friend in, in a church that, that I was in, and we hung out together. We we enjoyed spending time together. Went away for weekends, things like that. Um, we also would study the Bible together and, and pray together, and we became good friends over over a period of months. Uh, and one day he came and he wanted to share with me something. Uh, that he hadn't shared with me before, and kind of confess it to me. Um, and his confession was that he was uh, addicted to sex and had been regularly seeing prostitutes for a, lo- a long number of years and hadn't really ever told anyone about that. Um, and for some reason, our friendship kind of got to the point where he, he wanted to share that with me. And I remember very clearly the conversation where that came out. Obviously, I was a bit shocked and, and kind of taken aback. Um, and my response to him was basically... Well, you know, you know, you know, friends, your problem is that you love sin and you don't love God enough. It's a problem of, of your heart. 
And, and so kind of as I taught and as we spent time together, I tried to help him towards kind of a, I said, you need a, a deep and a long and an emotional prayer time seeking God, seeking him to change your heart, asking him to help you hate your sin and turning away from it and, and to be really moved to your heart that you will turn away from this way of living, which is clearly so unhelpful for you. And so we were there on our knees together, confessing sin, calling out to God to the point of tears, seeking heart change together. Well, later that night, we, we went to um, our pastor's home together. Um, kind of the next thing was, was really to go and talk to him about it, to share with him uh, what, what, what he had shared with me. And I got a lesson in genuine repentance as I sat, um, kind of part of that conversation, but kind of watching on between this pastor and, and my friends. The pastor calmly and clearly walked him through what a lifestyle of repentance would look like for him. He, he told him and taught him that that lifestyle wouldn't be led by his heart and his desires, because his heart and his desires had only led him to one sort of lifestyle. No, a genuine uh, lifestyle of repentance would look like, by faith, doing a U-turn in life, making a whole host of different decisions and a whole host of different things that would happen, by faith in Jesus, to follow Jesus, even while his heart led him away to certain other things. That's what it would look like for him to live in the light of the kingdom. And so we discuss practical lifestyle changes. We discuss choices that he could make to walk free of his addiction, to truly repent, to let certain things behind, and to, to change his life by the power of the Spirit. And, and we discussed the fact that over time that would see changes in his heart and in his desires and all sorts of things. But repentance was so much more than that. You see, I wasn't totally wrong in wanting to help my friend have a, a change of heart. And, and it is true that it was a problem of his heart. But it was wrong. That, re- that isn't what repentance is. It's feeling bad and sad about sin and, and, and whatever else. No, it's so much more. It's so much bigger. It's so much better. It's a whole change of life in obedience to a king, to King Jesus. It's joining the revolution of his kingdom. It's living as kingdom people. You know, Jesus hasn't just come to burden you with a sensitive conscience so you just always feel guilt-ridden. He's come that you may have new life. He has come to give you new life, to liberate and free you, to change you. He has come to change your direction. Well, listen, if, if each of us is honest with ourselves, there are directions in our life that need repentance even today. There are ways we're walking, ways we're going, ways that we're acting that we need to do an about turn. And I guess the work of the Spirit in your life will show you those. Maybe friends will be showing you those. Community groups this week is a chance for us to start to talk about what does repentance look like. The kingdom of God is near. What does it look like to walk in that way? It's two verses. I promise we're going to speed up now. Listen, um, we see this worked out in in, an example of these followers of Jesus, verse 16 through to 20. These first followers of Jesus. Because it's, I mean, it's surprising, firstly, that the kingdom is launched in Galilee. This is like Jesus' great kind of kingdom manifesto. And and he goes to Galilee of all places. You'd expect it to be in Jerusalem. Um, Nowadays, you'd expect if someone was going to kind of make this new grand kind of cultural move or whatever, it would be in somewhere like London or, or something, not kind of in the northeast Darlington or some other town, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, sorry if you're from there, but, you know, 
You, you, you get my point. Galilee's all the way up here, kind of, kind of nowhere really, in, in Jerusalem, where it's all happening is down there. And Jesus is here in Galilee, in this nowhere place as far as kingdoms go. But it's also surprising who is the first subjects of this kingdom are, because they're nowhere people as far as kingdoms go. These ragtag bunch of kind of fishermen going about their, their business. And Jesus says, come, follow me. And there's this kind of urgency that at once and, and without delay, they leave their work, they leave their life, they leave their families, they just kind of drop everything and follow him. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it? It's just strange. I don't know. Maybe they'd heard about Jesus. Maybe they'd seen the press conference. I, I don't know. We don't really get told. Mark just says, Jesus says, come follow me. And they followed. <laughs> Simple. But these nobodies from nowhere are the first in God's new kingdom. They're the first to live and to see the revolution and to experience it. It's crazy, isn't it? Because Jesus could have done his ministry alone. We'll see that as the story goes on. It wasn't like he needed these guys to help him or, you know, to, to, you know, to make a difference or whatever else. If anything, they were a hindrance. But Jesus at the start says, come, follow me. Come be with me. Become fishers of people. Come and have front row seats to seeing God's kingdom breaking in. You know what? That's still the invite that Jesus holds out to us today. Nobody's from nowhere. The kingdom of God has come near. Come follow. Come see. Come repent. Believe the good news. Join the revolution. Come and get a front row seat and see God's kingdom being built. See it growing. And that's what we need to see now. What God's kingdom looks like as it grows. And we need to be amazed at the king of the kingdom. Because what we have in the rest of our reading through this chapter is basically like just the itinerary of the first couple of days of, of Jesus' ministry, his kingdom work. And we kind of follow with the disciples as they just look on and, and, and follow Jesus around and see these things happen. And quite incredible things happen as the kingdom comes. I mean, it, maybe it just sounded like kind of loads of random stuff, but if you think about it and maybe just look through, it's amazing. Jesus teaches people and they are amazed and, and kind of we've never heard anything like this man before. And then he casts out demons and he heals the sick miraculously and he draws in the outcasts and those on the fringes and he loves and he cares for the needy. And he shows and demonstrates this new and this deeper way of relating to God. This is the spiritual winter thawing in Galilee. This is the kingdom of God coming near. And it's exciting and it's liberating and we should just be like, wow, that's that is quite something. This is what God's kingdom in its fullness looks like. Freedom from disease. Freedom from spiritual oppression. Intimacy with God. Relationships to others restored. Of course, as well as sins forgiven and, and godliness in us and, and new life to the full. But this is life in the kingdom. And we need to say, yes, this is good and this is the sort of thing we long for and we hope for. We also need to remember that yes, it is life in the kingdom, and yet the kingdom is still breaking in. So when Jesus returns and fully and finally restores his kingdom, the, the Bible leaves us in no doubt. Yes, disease is gone, and death is defeated, and, and spiritual oppression is taken away, and, and our relationships with God and with one another are fully restored. Until then, we pray and we hope, and we seek kind of advances on that kingdom, if you like, like a deposit on it or something through healing of the sick or relief from spiritual attack or 
deep experience of intimacy of God or any of these things. And yes, we do experience and enjoy them in part. But they are gracious gifts of kind gods and of the advances of the kingdom that we might receive now. We should be excited and amazed by the kingdom as Mark shows it to us. It should excite us. But listen, we should be more excited by the king of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is just where the king is and where his reign and his rule and, and his authority is. And so rather than just being amazed by the kingdom, we need to see the king here. We need to see what the king is like. And there's two things that I think we just, and the two themes, I mean, we just haven't got time really to, to draw out in any detail, but two themes that we can draw out from uh, these uh, stories. The first one is his amazing authority. So people are amazed at the authority in his teaching, first of all. We see it in verse 22 and 27. Literally, it's like they're shocked. Never come across anything like this before. I mean, Mark doesn't even really tell us what Jesus said. The thing that is the lasting impression is he teaches with authority and with power. That's the thing that people remember. But as he's teaching with this authority and power in, in his kind of first sermon, this kind of awkward moment uh, happens as he's kind of interrupted by this loud cry. And, uh, and someone kind of shouts out and wails as Jesus is teaching and everyone's kind of, what's going on here? Turns out someone's possessed by a demon. And so then Jesus further demonstrates that he doesn't just teach with authority. He has authority in spiritual realms as well. And so he casts a demon out in front of everyone. And the man is freed from his possession. And, and we read that later on, Jesus goes out to drive, uh, drive out many demons from many people around that place in that time. And, and even into the following day, he continues to do that in his ministry. But what really demonstrates Jesus' authority in this spiritual realm over these, over these spirits and other things is the respect and the awe that they have before Jesus. Do you see that when the, when the man cries out and, and there's this kind of encounter between Jesus and this spirit in the synagogue? He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Later on, we see that the other demons know who Jesus is. They recognize Jesus. And they are very much fearful and in awe of his power and authority. And so when Jesus says to them, listen, you cannot speak about me to these people. I do not want you being my representative but their mouths are shut. They do not speak. No arguing back. Listen, it's, it's possible that we don't feel entirely comfortable with the thoughts of demons and evil spirits, that kind of thing. It might just sound strange and peculiar to some of us. But make no mistake about it, this is real. You ought not ignore or deny these things. This is real. And perhaps the greatest achievements the powers of evil would be to persuade us that they do not exist and we do not need to worry about them. So they are real. But also, it's quite clear here, we don't need to be scared. We don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to be worried about these things. They've got nothing on Jesus. They've got nothing on Jesus. If you are his, you have nothing to fear from these kind of spiritual forces. Authority in his teaching is authority over the spiritual realm. And also, we see his authority over even disease and illness. Because at his command, again and again here, disease and illness just disappears. It flees from him. It flees from him. 
In verse 40, we see when this leper comes to him. The leper knows Jesus' authority because he says, if you are willing, then you can make me clean. No doubt about the power of Jesus. It's just, are you, are you willing? Are you up for it? If you are, leprosy will be gone. For Jesus is willing, he's cleansed. It's kind of authority that we're dealing with, with Jesus of Nazareth. Perhaps it's surprising, given this authority, given this power, um, that three times here, Jesus tells the demons and tells people that he heals, don't say who I am. Don't speak about me. It's in verses 25, 34, and 44. He doesn't seem to want kind of, I don't know, he doesn't seem to want his name to spread so much or, or lots of people to hear about him. Listen, Jesus isn't the latest kind of freak show around Galilee. He's not like some kind of traveling circus of wonders, drawing a crowd to look at him and be amazed and kind of impressed and entertained. He's not trying to get publicity and acclaim. Now, his press conference told us that's not what he's here to do. Now, he's on a mission to bring God's kingdom. He's on a mission to invite people into the kingdom by repentance and faith. And he knows that the crowds will be drawn to wonders. People will come to get a healing or to see something amazing happen, to be entertained. But no, he doesn't want crowds. He wants kingdom revolutionaries. He wants followers. He wants people who will believe and repent, who will live in the light of the kingdom. And Jesus knows those take a little longer to be born. You don't get those in a big crowd on day one. Jesus also knows that it's only when he gets to his cross and his resurrection where we see what life in the kingdom really looks like. It's only at that point where his disciples really know what the kingdom's about, what it looks like to live in the kingdom. It's that point the penny drops. And so at this point, earlier on, a few years earlier, Jesus wants the freedom to go about his kingdom work, build his kingdom. He's not just looking for the crowds that he could draw so easily. This is his amazing authority. This is the king of the kingdom. Secondly and finally, it's also his compelling compassion. His compelling compassion. I mean, we talk about this a lot, I guess, and I guess people are astounded by it a lot, but it just, spending time here this week, it just amazes you again. The way that Jesus relates to people, even when his, his time and his space is invaded. So, Effectively, it's kind of his Sunday lunchtime. He's had a busy morning in the synagogue, all sorts of things kicking off. He just needs a lunch and a bit of rest. And to get that, he has to heal the host before he can get his lunch. You know, that evening, again, just the days kind of continue, just interruption after interruption, thing after thing. You know, late on a Sunday evening, he's probably knackered. He just needs a rest. And, and the whole town is crowding at his door. All of the demon-possessed, all of the sick. And he stays up late into the night, healing and casting out showing his compassion and his grace. Early the next morning, after such a massive day, he's up early, we read, even before sunrise. And he's there going away to get time alone with his Father God, going to recharge and refresh his soul. And yet even there, they hunt him down. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. And even then, he responds with grace and gentleness. Over and over, Jesus shows compassion. 
He's, he's accessible to the poor and needy. People can come to him and they will get his attention and they'll have his energy and his time and his love and his grace. Actually, even his act of withdrawing is, 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 is an act of com- compassion for people. It's really surprising there in verse 35, I think, where Jesus is withdrawing away to pray to his father. I don't know what you think about Jesus, but I would have thought, well, he, if anyone, he doesn't need to go in and have some time of prayer. Surely he's just always kind of like, I don't know, in the zone with God, that that's just not something that he needs or that he does. Well, no, Jesus needs time with his father. We'll see throughout Mark, it comes up again and again, particularly busy points. He needs time with his father to have energy and capacity for his ministry. He, he carried the same physical and human limitations we do. He knows that, and so he has discipline, in, and, and he finds a time, and he finds a place where he can go. He can be alone with God. He can pray. He can recharge. We know from Jesus' prayer life, he lets us into at other points. He'll be praying for his disciples. He'll be praying for those who he's been healing and casting out demons. He'll be praying for the crowds. He'll be praying for himself. This is someone who lived dependently on his father. And even in doing that, it was so that he could show compassion and grace to those who are around him. This is the kind of love that he has kind of priorities he has, even in the busiest of schedules. But listen, I think, I think his compassion is most clearly seen in, in the healings that we have recorded here. And, and, and there's two healings which are recorded in detail and, and others which are kind of, uh, we, we hear that he did, did many others as well. But these two healings that we read about, there's a very interesting little detail. Very interesting little detail. And that's that Jesus physically touches both Simon's mother-in-law as he takes her by the hand and the leper that he heals at the end. The reason that's interesting is because Jesus doesn't need to touch someone to heal them. We, we see in the healings of Jesus, he does it in a whole host of ways, very often just by speaking. In fact, he even speaks and a man rises from the dead. So his voice is quite enough to achieve what he needs to achieve. But why does he touch these people to heal them? I think it's all about his love and his tenderness for the people being healed. You see, he's doing more than just kind of getting rid of disease for them. Now, he's doing much more than that. He is healing something in their heart as well as their body. He's bringing kind of a wholeness to them uh, and the whole person as he heals them and as they have their encounter with him. You see, it's interesting that Jesus pretty much always heals in the context of a personal contact with someone. There's a conversation, there's physical touch, there's an instruction or direction about what they ought to do next, or a response or something. We see all of these things here. Nothing like the kind of the healers that we see on the big stages, or, or, or who are beaming their promises into people's homes. People in our community are kind of receiving their promises from afar, from these great grand stages through the TV. Remote and far off from the suffering. Jesus was never like that. He was with people. He was talking. He was looking them in the eye. He was touching. In fact, look at verse 41 with me for a moment. As the man with leprosy comes to him, he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Mark says, Jesus was indignant. Or or the footnote says, Jesus was filled with compassion. It's this kind of this 
this gut-wrenching compassion mixed with anger, this hatred for the leprosy that would so destroy someone's life, and yet this love and this compassion for the person whose life is destroyed by it. He is indignant as he looks at this. And he walks towards the pain. He embraces the lost sufferer. He offers new life and new hope. He doesn't stay far off. And as Jesus touches that healer and heal, uh, touches that leper and brings healing to him, we get a little insight into what it cost Jesus actually here by Mark. See, leprosy back then was a bit like um, a bit like AIDS used to be in this country about 20 years ago. So if you had if you had AIDS here then it wasn't just that you had a terrible and, and a painful life-shortening disease and there was a whole load of kind of physical realities about having AIDS. It was difficult. But also, you had this social stigma. People thought, well, the reason you've got that is because of a, an immoral and a simple lifestyle or, or whatever else. And so you were rejected by the community and you're isolated and you're put on the fringes and, and, those, and you had to carry this whole social trauma as well as your physical trauma kind of a living hell. It's exactly what it was with, with lepers. People understood it as a parable of sin, and that there's some reason for your sin that you've got this leprosy disease and, and the uncleanness, and so you were kept out of the community and kept away from people and, and, and isolated and, and by yourself. And so the leper comes to Jesus, which is very bold in itself, because he's not allowed to be within 50 paces of anyone who hasn't got leprosy. As he comes to Jesus, he probably receives the first human touch on his skin that he's had in years, maybe in decades. First time someone has actually touched him. And immediately he's clean. His disease is gone. His life is changed. It's not just the disease is gone, but suddenly he can be part of the community again. He can talk to people, he can relate. It's just everything changes. Okay, you see that, he's, he's reintegrated. But what's the result for Jesus? See that snuck in there in verse 45 at the end. Leper goes and tells everyone about this, and so Jesus does start to get a reputation. And so as a result, Mark says, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he stayed outside in lonely places. You see, Jesus is now the one who, he was kind of on the inside, he was all right with people and all the rest. But he brought the leper in. And that's meant Jesus has been cast out. He's now isolated. He's now alone. He's no longer connected. Basically, out of his love and his compassion, he swapped places with that leper. Jesus now socially cut off, alone, and isolated. That is the depths of his compassion. That's the depths to which the king would go to invite and to bring people into his kingdom. To give people a new way of living, a new life, a new hope, a new salvation. That's why we need to be amazed at the king of the kingdom. As much as we're amazed at the kingdom, we'd be amazed at the king. A king who uses his amazing authority and the com compelling compassion he has to come to us. Those of us who are spiritually diseased, who are, who are living under spiritual oppression, nobody's in a nowhere place, and yet he walks towards us comes to us, he takes us by the hand, and he literally lifts us up. Through his cross and his resurrection, he defeats Satan, he defeats the powers of darkness that oppress us. 
he undoes the curse that we live under. And he's taken us by the hand, he lifts us up, and he says, come, follow me. Repent and believe the good news. Receive life everlasting. This is life in the kingdom. It's the revolution that we're invited into. It's the revolution that we're given. What we take out to those around us. The king is here and he is on the move even today. Let's rejoice. Let's praise him. King Jesus, we, we are amazed at you. We are amazed at your authority and your compassion. We are amazed at who you are and what you offer to us. Would you help us to be those who live in the kingdom, who repent, who don't just pay you lip service, but in our lives live out what it means to follow and know you. Would you, by your spirit, help us to enjoy and know the liberation of life in your kingdom, Lord. We know your kingdom is here, and yet it is also coming. We look forward to the day when all of these things will be fully and finally here and true. But whilst we wait for that day, would you help us to be faithful? To you as our king, we pray.